0: Last month we were asking, who am I? This month we're asking, who are we and where are we going? Welcome back to the Vintage Podcast. Uh, indeed, last month we were talking about what makes us who we are, looking at the brain. I was away on holiday, but I'm back in the studio. Yeah,
1: when you say we, Will. I mean
0: you, really.
1: <laughs> were you listening to it in your lederhosen well, in the Alps? When
0: I when I got back uh, wearing my lederhosen from holiday, I had a very good listen and very enjoyable it was Still too. Still
1: wearing them, ladies and gentlemen.
0: You can just picture it, can't you?
1: Did you do much reading on holiday?
0: I read so much. It was bliss. The good thing about holidaying in Austria is that the weather isn't 100% sunny, so you can get reading done. So I've read all sorts of things. And in fact, one of the books I read was very pertinent to this podcast. It was Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. I know everybody else in the world has read it, but I hadn't. And I absolutely... Loved it. So I'm very pleased that we're going to have a chance to talk about all of that in more depth.
1: Yeah, we're very, very excited that Yuval Noah Harari is going to be joining us uh, this month to talk about Sapiens, but also to talk about Homo Deus, his absolutely captivating and kind of terrifying book. Um, first of all, I think we're going to be joined by someone else, though, aren't we, Will?
0: We are indeed. Uh, a big fan of Sapiens too, like myself. Uh, but Lewis Dartnell, the author of The Knowledge, is going to have a quick chat with us about his own work, but also how it ties together with Yuval Noah Harari's.
1: I'm really pleased to be joined now by Lewis Dartnell, author of The Knowledge. Hello, Lewis. Hello, how are you doing? We're really delighted you've come to talk to us. I'm
2: also delighted to be about here. There is much delight around this table. There is much <laughs> delight
1: as we gather to talk about Yuval Noah Harari and his canon of work, his yes. rapidly growing canon of work. Um, but first let's talk about yours. Lewis, you're the author of The Knowledge. You're also in possession of a really crazily exciting job title. <laughs> just just tell us a bit about you.
2: So I've been funded by the UK Space Agency. You've got space in the title The already. space in the title. Uh, my field is got cool. astrobiology, which is all about looking for the possibility of life on other planets, so I've been extending my biology background to the possibility where there's bacteria on Mars and, and how you discover it.
1: I know that this is not the kind of question that you can answer in 50 words, but anyway... How do you find bacteria on Mars? (laughs) Carefully, I suppose, is is always the answer (laughs) to that kind of question.
2: So at the moment, we're exploring Mars with with robots. We haven't sent people or human explorers or astronauts to Mars yet. So in essence, what you do is take an entire laboratory full of kit, shrink it down as much as you can so it fits in the pointy end of a rocket, strap some wheels and solar panels to it to make your your Mars rover, and then launch it to where you think is the most interesting place on Mars to explore and test things and analyse things and and look for what we call biosignatures, signs of life.
1: Now, let us talk about the knowledge. Just give us a few pointers as to what it is, why you came to write it.
2: So, on the face of it, the the conceit of the knowledge is that it's a a manual, a blueprint that you would need to reboot civilization after an apocalypse. What was the most important scientific discoveries and technologies we invented over the whole course of human history? to get us from 10,000 BC and living in caves to today with antibiotics and radio and the internal combustion engine? And could you accelerate that a second time around if, if we ever had to start again? But, but of course, it's not really about the end of the world at all. It's kind of, as a scientist, me trying to explore the kind of behind-the-scenes fundamentals of how our world works and what enable us to progress through history. But I imagine civilization disappeared tomorrow.
1: So for people who are sort of... Fairly illiterate in the history of science, I mean like me, I would think to myself, okay, fire, the wheel, yeah. those are the things that you sort of ingest as a kid, are the yeah. sort of key developments. Is that is that right? Well, it it
2: tux, touches on those kind of simple processes and then and, and sweeps up through history to, to more and more complex things. And, and fire is really interesting because we know that it cooks our food and kills germs and it keeps the cold at bay. But fire in a kind of fundamental sense is still absolutely crucial to how our society works. We just hide it behind the scenes. We, we have tiny miniature bursts of fire inside our engines to drive our cars. We have fires in our factories and in our industry. It's just invisible to us today. But living today, we are as, as reliant on, on fire as a Stone Age family huddled around the campfire. We just don't see it anymore. It's just was, behind the scenes. We don't really appreciate it. We, we, we take these things for granted is the whole point of the knowledge.
1: Will, what about you? Are you up to speed on this sort of thing?
0: Well, what I loved about the knowledge was that it reminds you, like you say, the things that we take for granted. So well, my fa- one of my favourite hacks from that book is how to open a tin can <laughs> if you don't have a tin can opener. <laughs> because, you know, it's no good having this brilliantly preserved food if you can't actually exactly. get it out of the tin. So uh, what you do is you put it on a, a rough surface and you just sort of rub it until yeah. you wear through the metal at the top, because it's a folded piece of metal at the top, isn't it? And then exactly. the top will just pop off. But of course, if you don't know that and you're just, you're just left there with a can and brutishly kind of punching yeah, it that's until in do, do. Exactly. that's end up cutting be Exactly it so it means it on a campfire weekend you can be a hero if there's <laughs> no can opener
2: So I talk about some like you say kind of simple life hacks about how to open a can without a can opener how to start a fire without a, without a box of matches how long could you survive in a supermarket if you were locked in there before the food ran out but each of these I mean they're quite frivolous examples and the answer is relatively interesting quite interesting <laughs> but, but with each of them it's not really the fact that it's the important thing it's, it's the, the reason behind it mm-hmm. that I'm using to illustrate like how is it that we can stop Bacteria or mold eating our food before a human can eat it, and that's how we invented the canning process. Mm. Um, And you know, kind of having this, like, say, the the folded metal lip um, slapped on top to stop the air getting in. That's fundamentally how we eat food nowadays.
1: So let's move on to Yuval Noah Harari, and. You've come in to talk to us because you are a huge fan. Mm. Um, because these this book, Sapiens, and, and the new book, Homideus, have really sort of meant something to you. You yes. relate to them. Just explain a bit why.
2: Well, I'll be honest, my first sensation was, was one of irk because Sapiens and Knowledge treat very, very similar subject matters, the, the kind of history of humanity and how we've built mm. the civilization from different, slightly different angles, and his was far more successful than mine. <laughs> <laughs> but despite yeah. that, despite myself, I really, really enjoyed Sapiens. It's a wonderfully clear uh, survey kind of uh, sweep through through history over tens of thousands of years of what makes us us what, what makes homo sapiens us and, and how we got from there to here these kind of key transitions and, and transformations around history and then you know the advent of agriculture the scientific revolution the cognitive revolution uh, it's is a wonderful kind of exploration of, of all this
1: well, you're
0: a big fan, aren't you? I'm a big fan. I, I've actually only recently read it because it's one of those books that everybody had been talking about. And yeah. I thought, yes, I must get round to that, but it looks very big. But I've just recently read it and it isn't big it's at all It's very lightly written, isn't it? Oh, it's you're just so easy to read. Very
1: much so.
2: So
0: entertaining. And I don't think I can think of another book that manages so successfully to step back mm. and just give you an incredibly clear, wide and sort of revelatory view of, of who we are and how we got here. And I... Not quite sure how he does that with such a light touch, which is why I think the book is so It's popular. a very good
2: example of what's known as, as big history. Not yeah. focusing so much on the details, but like I say, taking a step back, getting a bit of perspective and looking at the whole sweep of history, the, the, the grand trends and themes that have, that have recurred.
1: And his starting point, really, as the title suggests, is what makes us us, as you say, Lewis, But how that came to be, how we, as a species of humanity, Homo sapiens mm. came to be basically the, the, the top guy.
2: Yeah. Well, the, the bit I found fascinating is humanity isn't even the first or only human species. Yes. There were a whole uh, tree, you know, tens of thousands years ago, 100,000 years ago, of a very similar species, all inhabiting different parts of the world, and we came to dominate. So the kind of key question that, that Yuval answers there is why us? Mm. Why is it us not the Neanderthals or Homo floresiensis? What what was special about us? What was different about us? Maybe about our biological advantages or um, the way we kind of use the environment and, and adapted from that.
1: Was it largely to do with cooperation, with our ability to work together as a species?
2: So th- there's various explanations and Uval explores um, explores them and there's no clear idea or, or kind of conclusive answer just yet but it's everything from our culture and our inherited uh, learning. You don't just work something out for yourself, each generation. You're taught it by your, by your parents or other members of the community. We, we have language. We can communicate very complex ideas to each other. Um, the invention of agriculture and how you can feed yourself and grow up great big surpluses of, of grain of wheat or rice or maize and have a, a big population explosion. So there's lots of things all came together at different times.
1: Some of those those things, some of those human attributes, We're now beginning to find, though, aren't we, in other animal species? And we've assumed that that's not the case. We've assumed, for example, that animals can't speak to each other. Um, (laughs) But they communicate.
2: Well, animals certainly communicate. Um, I still think there is a vast chasm of difference between the most complex communication animals, something like the humpback whale song, which I've studied in my own research, Um, Mm -hmm. chimpanzee sign language, which they've been taught by humans. Compare those most advanced examples in the rest of the animal kingdom to humans it, it, it just doesn't compare we, we are still leaps and bounds ahead
1: here is the key examples. question though about that is it time is basically time the difference
2: how, how do you mean as in we've had longer to as develop as in
1: we just happen to have done it in that time frame and other species will have their their day unless we stop them doing so so sorry?
2: I guess the fascinating thought experiment there would be if you were to click your fingers or push a big red button and vanish humanity, yes. what would come next? Would chim- chimpanzees end up developing more complicated language and culture and, and a civilization of their own? Could you have some kind of aquatic civilization from hyper squid? I mean, who knows? That's the problem of futurology. You can wave your arms, you can say stuff which sounds feasible, but have no way of knowing it. Know, it's so fascinating. This, this why is the why are we of so fascinated with this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Everyone, I'm now thinking of the moment in The Simpsons where they welcome their insect overlords. Oh, yeah, well... And, you know, this is what might happen, isn't it? We will be enthralled to the bugs.
2: Maybe, maybe.
1: Actually, not us. <laughs> well, not us, unless Yuval's predictions in his new book are, are true, mm. and we do eventually conquer the problem of, of human mortality. Now, yes. is that the kind of thing that seems utterly sci-fi? I mean, there have been reports in the press just in the last few days of experiments to regenerate brain matter after death.
2: Yeah, so so, so clearly it's something of a, a huge goal for, for humans to extend our own lifespan and potentially even make that essentially infinite. Mm-hmm. And the idea is of, of this singularity where we can... Um, through medical advances, extend the human lifespan enough that in the 10 extra years you're given, 20 extra years you're given, there's another medical advance that extends you by another 10 years and another medical advance extends you. So you never quite reach that point where you end up dying because technology keeps on extending you, maybe up to the point when you can start uploading your consciousness into into a computer bank. And again, these, these are wonderful tropes of sci-fi, the kind of the sociology and the problems of it have been explored very, very well in science fiction novels. As to whether that is possible or if it happens, when it will happen, I say you, you're basically arm-waving by this point. Mm. And, and what's been the, the lesson from history is the predictions you make for 15 years in the future rarely come true, mm. and the transformed technologies just blindside everyone. Well, no one predicted something like the internet and lolcats. So, <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know what I mean People were talking about kind of jetpacks and flying cars. They'd be great, but no one saw something like the World Wide Web in, in, the, in the form that we have today today. Um, uh, 50,
0: years ago.
1: Yeah, I remember when we all thought we were going to be eating our meal, meals in pill form. Mm. Yes. But also, the the, you mentioned
0: the World Wide Web. I mean, that's so that's just celebrated its 25th mm. birthday, which, which seems in itself a bit odd because it seems like it's been around for much longer than that. But of course, it hasn't. But in those 25 years, our lives have been completely changed. I remember the day when the internet
2: was first installed at my school. Yeah. Uh, I was in GCSE and just the exquisite excitement they want to go and get a, like a Yahoo email account or a hotmail <laughs> account and start searching things on uh, on on the internet. Um, and now, you know, our least like generation They've never lived mm. without the internet. My God, can Liz, you imagine? You
1: just made me feel so old. I remember when we got colour at home.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember a VCR.
0: <laughs> but these, I mean, these technological changes, as you say, we they are difficult to predict and what effect they might have on our lives. So, as you say, when you're sort of casting ahead, what might be the next stage of of human evolution? It does all sound completely bonkers, but it doesn't sound so bonkers to me. I can absolutely see these things happening. I can see. A point at which disease is not a problem. There have already been these sort of Hollywood films made about this, you know, that pro- that projection going forward. Yeah. So is that a good thing or is it a slightly terrifying thing? I'm just trying to, where do, where do I mean, Don DeLillo's latest novel, Zero K, is what what does life mean if, if it isn't finite, you know, if, if mm. we're not. Uh, but this modern. is something
2: I explored in The Knowledge and Yuval explored in, in Sapiens scientific understanding and the technology you make from it is is inherently neither good nor evil it's kind of amoral it's outside morality because it's how you use it mm. that defines whether it's a good thing or a bad thing so life extension technology great and almost certainly uh, be first given to people in the developed world and so it will potentially just widen the gap between developing nations who can't afford and developed nations who can so the technology itself is neither good nor bad. It's how we roll it out. It's how we apply it. It's, it's who we give it access to. It's how we control these technologies.
1: Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it? We could sort of talk all day about it. However, you, I understand, are jet-lagged. I mean, no-one's <laughs> found a cure for that. It's quite extraordinary. So I, I got
2: back late last night from Korea. I was doing a, a keynote talk for the Jikji Festival. And Jikji is the name of the first-ever printed book using movable metal type. And the Koreans invented uh, that printing technology a solid 70 years before Gutenberg in Germany. Uh, so they're having this this international celebration of, of that invention. Um, and what I absolutely loved, not just doing the talk, which is great, but I got to make my own metal type from scratch. We went to a traditional Jikji metal foundry and we kind of uh, created the, the wet sand mould, poured in the molten metal, the bronze, uh, and kind of uh, polished it all off and made my own metal type. What, did yeah. you, what word? Or words so it was in Korean script. So Jigji was originally printed in Chinese characters before the Korean script was invented. Uh, so we had, it looks like a beautiful kind of metal, metallic tree because of the, the process of casting the metal. You have these stalks linking the, the cubic uh, metal types, the characters. So it looks like the great big bronze tree. And the letters on the top that we casted were the characters Jik and ji. So it, it's, 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 a, it's a word from the title of this mm. Buddhist text that was the first book ever to be printed.
1: Wow, Lewis, it's been so fascinating to talk to you. Will you come back and talk to us when your next book comes out, please? Or when you discover life on Mars. (laughs) Whichever happens first. Whichever happens first. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much for having me. Well, that was a really fascinating discussion, wasn't it?
0: Totally fascinating. I'm loving Lewis's energy. There's no problem in the world he cannot solve with all his knowledge.
1: And space. (laughs) Yeah. But it wasn't interesting the way that, uh, that as we closed, he started talking about the past, essentially, about Gutenberg, mm. about what preceded Gutenberg. That was just fascinating. You have to remember that all the things that are going on now and will go on in the future have their roots in stuff that has happened in the past. Mm. Yuval well Noah Harari, of course, is, is really the sort of past master at that grand sweep of history. Sapiens is... God knows how many thousands of years, compressed into 400 pages. His new book is a look at the present and a speculation about what might happen in the future. We're so thrilled to be joined by him. Yuval, you've just arrived in the UK, haven't you?
3: Yes, just yesterday night.
1: And this is the first thing we've we've made you come to our studios. (laughs) And I'm going to quiz you mercilessly about Homo Deus. So many people read Sapiens and were absolutely thrilled by it. Um, not to give you too much detail about my domestic life, but I live with someone who became obsessed by it and would only ever just walk in the room and say, no, I have to read this bit. And I essentially heard it as a sort of audiobook in mm. chunks, in the fascinating <laughs> chunks before I actually read it straight through. It is such a gripping book. Were you aware of how much it would be taken to people's hearts when you, when you started writing it?
3: Um, No, not at all. I mean, it began actually the course in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, an introduction to history to first-year students. And uh, when I wrote it down, I thought it would be like, okay, maybe for college students and and a few others. But uh, I really didn't envision how successful it will become.
1: And now you've written Homer Deus, which to me is a sort of companion piece or or continuation. Is is that right? Is that how you... Yes, about it.
3: I, I think about Homo Deus as starting where sapiens ends. Sapiens is about uh, the rise of, uh, of humankind, how this insignificant ape from East Africa uh, conquered the world. And then Homo Deus is about how this insignificant ape is now trying to transform itself into a god, uh, the god of planet Earth, and trying to acquire really divine abilities and uh, what it's going to do to us and to the world and to the rest of life.
1: It's interesting. I mean, there is so much about that idea of the divine, Mm. of um, religious potency. But of course, you have to actually have a concept of that in order to be able to do it. I mean, where does that come from in our consciousness, that will to be a god of all things?
3: Well, I think it's, it's basically the pursuit of power. And I want to emphasize that when I speak about humans upgrading themselves into gods, I'm not saying it as a metaphor, but I literally mean that the kind of abilities that in previous eras mythologies ascribed to gods, we are now trying to acquire these abilities to ourselves. Abilities such as overcoming old age and death, uh, abilities such as uh, creating and destroying things according to our wishes, especially living things. In the Bible, uh, the first thing God God does is to create, to create animals and plants and humans according to his wishes. And now we, or at least scientists, are acquiring this ability to start engineering and creating living things according to our wishes. Um, It's not science fiction anymore. I think that in the 21st century, the main products of the economy will not be textiles and food and vehicles and weapons. The main products of the 21st century economy will be bodies and brains and minds. We are learning how to manufacture and engineer them.
1: You start with this this very um, arresting idea that death essentially is a series of technical problems Yes, and we will overcome them we'll I mean, try this... i'm not sure if we'll
3: succeed but we'll try <laughs> we'll
1: try and you and you exactly you say that in fact that the sort of next you, you know foreseeable period of our mm-hmm. human history and endeavor will be in the trying this is going to dominate mm-hmm. and actually you just see it all around you all the time that is a terrifying thought to us in some ways isn't it why is it i wonder
3: why is it terrifying? Why is
1: it terrifying? I mean, it seems at once the, mo- the thing that one most wants, because we spend our whole life living with the idea of mortality mm-hmm. and in many ways fearing death, many of our actions are about coping with that denial or fear of death. But also the idea of, of unlimited life is also terrifying, isn't it?
3: When today people speak about overcoming old age and death, um, they don't envision that you take a pill and you live to be a million. Um, that's nonsensical and nobody would like to do it. I mean, very few people can even grasp what does it mean to live to be a million. So what we're really talking about is uh, incremental medical advances that will allow us to cheat death one decade at a time. I mean, if you come to a person and say, would you like to live to be a million? Nobody really understands what it means. But if you come to a person and say, okay, would you like to have another 10 years of life uh, in good shape, in, in, with good health, the vast majority of people would say, yes, I would like another 10 years in good health. And when these 10 years are over, and they again come and say, okay, would you like another 10 years uh, of, of life in, in good health? Again, people will say yes. And this is what we're talking about when we speak about overcoming old age and death. As you said, whereas throughout history, death was seen as an inevitable destiny. ...of humans and all living beings as a kind of metaphysical phenomenon. God said, when God created humans, he set death as their destiny. And nothing we can do can change this. Maybe one day the Messiah will come, or maybe God will have second thoughts about it... ...and then there will be no more death. This was a traditional view of death. So now scientists are coming and saying, no... Death is not a metaphysical phenomenon. Death is not some divine commandment. It's just a technical problem, a very difficult technical problem. But still, people die always because of of some technical glitch. And we can solve, we can overcome these problems. Uh, So death is no longer kind of the monopoly of priests and philosophers. Mm. Now the engineers are taking over. We don't need to wait for Christ or for God to overcome death. Uh, a couple of geeks in a laboratory can do it. If you give them enough time and enough money.
1: One of the things, I suppose, that will come into people's minds as you say that is, well, sure, okay, supposing we did that, there are still so many dreadful things that define the, or characterize the world. War, poverty, disease. Mm-hmm. Now, you argue very forcefully in this book, as indeed I think you did touch on in sapiens that actually we may think that because we're in the midst of it but these things are all in decline we are beginning to conquer those things too
3: yes again for thousands of years uh the three biggest problems of humankind were famine plague and war and everything people did to pray to gods and saints and angels to invent all kinds of new political and economic system nothing worked and then in the last century or so without even noticing, we have managed to overcome, to rein in famine, plague, and war. They are still there to some extent, and I come from the Middle East, so I know that they are still there, but they have, they have been transformed from um, inescapable uh, natural forces into manageable problems that we sometimes fail to solve, but it's within our power. Today, for the first time in history, more people die from eating too much than from eating too little. Mm. More people die for the first time in history from old age than from infectious diseases and epidemics. And more people commit suicide every year than the total number of people killed by war and crime and terrorism put together. Certainly in a place like the UK, your chances of being killed by Coca-Cola and McDonald's is about a thousand times greater than your chances of being killed by Al Qaeda or the Islamic State. So there are still problems and they grab our attention. But from the bird's eye perspective of history, uh, things have never been so good, at least on these three fronts Mm -hmm. of overcoming uh, famine, plague and war.
1: I wondered on a more sort of, um, I suppose, a more emotional level, uh, one of the things that we say when we look at incredibly um, attritional uh, and and apparently intractable conflicts like the conflict in Syria, like much of the situation in the Middle East, as as you mentioned, is... um, essentially what is always called man's inhumanity to man. Mm -hmm. It's essentially that attitude that different groups of human beings will have towards another that might express itself in a fight over religion or territory. These seem to be sort of ingrained in our human nature. Is that Mm. a fallacy, though, when I say that? Is that just an assumption I make from my own human-centered viewpoint?
3: Mm -hmm. Um, There is something ingrained in our nature, of uh, tribal instincts and xenophobia towards others, towards strangers. But we are able to overcome it, and we have to a large extent managed to overcome it in the last centuries or even millennia. I mean, on the biological level, the tribal feeling encompasses only a few dozen persons that you actually know. For millions of years, humans and their ancestors lived in very small, intimate communities of a few dozen individuals. This was your band. This was your tribe. And you felt very closely connected to all these people, which you actually knew intimately. Mm -hmm. And you felt um, estranged and um, xenophobic towards everybody else. This is no longer the case. I mean, when we speak today about tribal emotions or tribalism, we don't think about small bands of a few dozen individuals. We think about nation states of millions of people. We think about religions of hundreds of millions of people. uh, Coming from Israel, I don't know all the 8 million Israelis. I don't know all the 15 million Jews in the world. It's an imagined community. So in our imagination we are already able to transcend these very narrow biological limits of our uh, empathy. And therefore, there is every reason to think that if you can go from 100 people to 8 million people in your community, it's much easier to go from 8 million people to 8 billion people and to even throw in all the animals and other sentient beings.
1: So you mean you'd, we could actually start to think of ourselves as a tribe of eight billion?
3: Yes, and I think this is this is we are not there yet, but we are heading in that direction. Um, the world today is basically a single community with a lot of infighting, and as we know, some very often the worst conflicts are within the family, within the community, uh, and this is because in the twenty-first century, all the major problems of the world are global in nature. Whether it's the global economic crisis, whether it's global warming, whether it's the threat of the rise of artificial intelligence, this is something that no single country can solve by itself. So the old uh, local national identities are less and less relevant to the type of challenges that we will be facing in the coming decades.
1: Do you think, in a way, just to sort of veer uh, a little into politics, that is why there is such an apparently rampant rise of nationalism and why we see, for example, candidates like Donald Trump mm. making invocations to an Amer- a sort of imagined America, why we've just seen um, the rise of the, the right in Germany in mm-hmm. the elections that have just taken place in the last few days? Um, do you think that's sort of part of it? It's like a sort of last kind of kick
3: Yes, it's a backlash against the frightening uncertainties of the 21st century. So people want to hold on to something familiar and stable and, and, uh, and internal, which is, of course, not eternal and not stable. So they try to hold on to traditional religious and national identities, but uh, it won't work. And even this backlash, uh, again, to put it in perspective... It's far, far more moderate than the kind of things we saw, say, a century ago, if you think about Europe. So 100 years ago, exactly, 1916, Europeans were killing one another by the millions because of their adherence to these national identities, Mm -hmm. of Germans and French and Britons and Italians and so forth. I mean, today, with all the talk about the rise of nationalism, very few people are willing to kill or be killed for it. If you think, for example, about, I don't know, like the Scottish nationalism and the referendum, whether Scotland would remain in the UK or not. Um, A century or two ago, the English would have sent an army to uh, massacre tens of thousands of people in Scotland, as they did in the 18th century, if the option of an independent Scotland uh, would have been raised. Um, today, nobody is thinking in such terms. If the referendum turns out that 51% of Scots wants to become an independent nation, nobody would send an army to burn down Edinburgh and Glasgow, and vice versa. I mean, uh, so if, if you just think in terms of what happened to European nationalism over the last hundred years, um, it's a immense change. To give just one other example, a century ago, Italy entered the First World War um, to liberate uh, some so-called Italian territories which uh, were inside the Austro hungarian Empire. About 600,000 Italian soldiers died in the war, and more than a million were wounded. Do you think that today the Italians would be willing to sacrifice even 6,000 soldiers for anything? I can't think about anything that the Italians would be willing to sacrifice so many lives for. So with all the talk about the rise of nationalism, it's nothing like what we saw in Europe a century or two ago.
1: Would you put that down to a decline in the power of governments or monarchies? I mean, as in we are far more a kind of world of republics of one where we can Mm -hmm. all kind of say, no, that's not what I want. Famously, the not in my name um, slogan that Mm -hmm. that, um, accompanied the Iraq war protests. Do you think people have more power?
3: I'm not sure I'm definitely governments are losing their power because of the rise of these global forces, which are beyond the reach of national governments. And this causes to some extent also ordinary people to lose their power. I think part of the reason for the anger of voters, ordinary voters, that manifested itself in things like the Brexit vote or what's happening with Trump in in the, in the United States is that Ordinary voters are feeling, and they are correct in that feeling, that they are losing the power to influence events. Uh, They are incorrect in diagnosing where the power has shifted to. In the UK, many people think, okay, we are losing power because power has shifted to Brussels. In the United States... Ordinary voters think, okay, we are losing power because power has shifted to some mysterious thing called the establishment Mm. that supports Hillary Clinton or whatever. And this is not true. Power did not shift to Brussels or to the establishment. Nobody really knows where the power has shifted to. We do know that the kind of power structure that was built in the 19th and 20th century and which underlies Uh, 20th century politics is no longer functioning. But what is the new power structure nobody really understands. Nobody really understands what governs the world in the early 21st century, which is also why nobody has a clue how the world would look like in 20 years. It's the first time in history, basically, that we don't have any understanding of the near future if you think about things like the job market, nobody has a clue how the job market would look like in 20 or 30 years, which also implies that nobody has a clue what we need to teach children today at school so that they will still have relevant knowledge in 20 years. And it's an immense... And and again, people, maybe they don't think about it consciously, but they are feeling this immense threat of the unknown and this is why they try to hold on to something familiar, like a religion or like a national identity. And the sad news is that this is not the solution; it won't work.
1: What will do you think? I mean, you say that we're not able to say what the new near future looks like, but that mm. is part of what Homodeus does. It tries. Yeah. you try, right? I
3: in in Homodeus, I try not to make prophecies and predictions but to bring up various possibilities. I don't say this is how the future would be like, but okay, let's think more creatively about the different possibilities. I try to map uh, a spectrum of possibilities, some of them contradictory, of where humankind is headed towards. And I think what we need above all at present is to free ourselves from the models and the the political and economic and philosophical models that were created in the 19th and 20th century in adaptation to the Industrial Revolution and to the Industrial Age. And we need new models. And to take just a simple, not a simple, but to take one very important example Maybe the most important ideological movement that came out of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century was socialism, uh, focusing on the new class that emerged due to the Industrial Revolution, the urban working class. And socialism was so important and so successful because it gave answers to the problems, to the hopes, to the fears of this new working class which none of the traditional ideologies or religions were, was able to do. Now, in the 21st century, we are likely to see the rise of a new massive class of people, the useless class, people who, have, who are not only unemployed, but unemployable, who have no military or economic function, uh, because artificial intelligence has pushed humans out of the job market, and socialism has no answer to the useless class because the entire socialist worldview is premised on the idea that the working class is working and that it is vital for the economy. And this is, for example, why if they go on strike, it's an immense force because the industrial society needs the working class. But it will,
1: it will cease to be exactly. at, at some point, you
3: what, think? what will socialism has to offer to the useless class, to the unworking class, I don't know, so that's the problem it has. You mean, I mean, for for left leaning parties
1: and governments, exactly. I guess that is the problem that they need to confront. Whereas, I uh, would you say that that favoured? I mean, in fact, categories of right and left are sort of collapsing too. Exactly, but but essentially wealth preserving the, the, Mm -hmm. the, the the. Kinds of political force that preserve wealth in the hands of the few and are also uh, um, concerned with wealth creation. Do you think they are sort of inherently favoured by this sort of chaos, as it were? At
3: present, yes, um, because again, the old system is is collapsing, and wealth creation is a something which has a very narrow aim. In a chaotic world, if you have a narrow aim. Um, you can still achieve it. If all, If the only thing you want is to make another billion dollars, you can game the system. And if it's a very chaotic system, nobody understands what is happening. It actually make, makes it easier to game the system and gain another billion or $10 billion. If you have a wider aim, like ensuring social justice, it's becoming more and more difficult mm-hmm. because you don't understand what is happening. And if you spoke earlier about this vision of overcoming old age and death and so forth, so one of the things that trouble me when I look at places like Silicon Valley is that immortality is in, but equality is out. I mean, you have more and more people uh, who are leading the 21st century and they are focusing on uh, on projects which will benefit perhaps a very small percentage of the of humankind, at the same time, seeing growing inequalities and the potential of creating the most unequal society in the history of the world.
1: I'm going to ask you now about something that you've referred to um, in this conversation, the threat of artificial intelligence. Yeah. And that comes across as a, a terribly strong part of the book. I mean, a really mm-hmm. serious part of the book when you describe essentially the world going in... It's what you call dataism, yes. I think. When you, the world going in the direction of algorithms and data mm-hmm. and how this is really going to decenter us,
3: I suppose, in the Anthropocene age.
1: Can you just explain a bit more about that?
3: Yes. To, to, to put it in a nutshell, we are approaching the point when an external algorithm, an external data processing system can understand humans better than they understand themselves. This is the crucial moment of change when authority will start shifting away from humans to these external algorithms. Uh, At present, we are still living in a humanist age. And the basic assumption or basic belief of the humanist ideology is that you know yourself better than anybody else can ever know you. Only you really know how you feel what you want, uh, what's happening within yourself. And therefore, there is no room for any big brother, for any pope, for any king, for any god to tell you how to live your life. Uh, In politics, we think that the voter knows best. Mm -hmm. In economics, we say that the, um, the customer is always right. The highest authority is the feelings and the wishes of the customer. In education, we teach people to think for themselves. In art, we say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The highest authority in art, in aesthetics, is the individual and what you feel, what you think is beautiful. And all this is now being threatened because the moment you have an algorithm that understands you and your feelings and your desires better than you understand yourself, humanism collapses. And you have an effective big brother that replaces the customer, the voter, the individual. And we are getting very close to that point because of two two scientific developments which are now merging. On the one hand, you have the life scientists deciphering the human body and the human brain and the human DNA. And at the same time, we have computer scientists creating more and more sophisticated algorithms with better and better computing power. If you put the two together, what you get is an external computer or algorithm or program that can understand your body, your brain, what's happening within you much better than you can. And at that moment, the authority shifts from you, from the individual to that uh, entity. And to give some simple example of how it works, uh, we are talking here about books. So let's give an example from the world, world of books. Mm. Um, more and more people are now reading electronic books on devices like Kindle. What they don't often realize is that when they are reading the book, the book is starting to read them. Kindle is constantly gathering information about you as you read the book. Today, it's it's still very simple stuff. Like, Kindle knows how fast you read each page in the book, when you stopped reading the book, uh, when you came back to reading it, when you stopped and never came back to reading it. So it has some understanding of, uh, of how you read the book. Now, if you add to Kindle technology which already exists to recognize faces and facial expressions, then Kindle will start knowing how you react, what your emotional reactions are to the book. And if you then add uh, new new technology, which is now being developed, of biometric sensors constantly connected to your body, constantly measuring your heart rate, your blood pressure, the level of sugar in your blood, and and so forth, what you'll get is an amazing system That every sentence you read in the book, the book, Kindle, will know what is the emotional impact of that sentence on you. It will know when you laugh, when you cry, when you are bored, when you are angry, every sentence you read. And whereas you forget 99% of what you read, Kindle will never forget Mm. anything, which means Amazon will never forget anything. Half a year later, maybe you don't remember almost anything from the book. But Amazon now knows, or Amazon's algorithms now understand your psychology, your personality, your emotions much better than you understand them. And it can press your emotional buttons. And what does that mean?
1: Well, one of the things, I mean, it, the first thing that strikes me is it, it doesn't allow for, although perhaps this is merely a question of sophistication, the idea of conflicted emotions, the idea of a sort of mash of emotions together, which
3: I think a lot of us think of as, as being human. No, it actually allows them far more than what's happening today. When today, when somebody asks you, how do you feel? So the tendency is to go for a single A single word, a single emotion. Mm. I'm angry, I'm bored, uh, I'm I'm fearful. And Amazon's Kindle or whatever other device uh, you're talking about, it can think in a much more sophisticated way about emotions because it can quantify exactly what's happening in your brain, what's happening to your heart, what's happening or to your blood pressure every second. But what about my mind? It, it can... Are
1: they? Is that a different thing? The complexity of all those things, all those biological mm-hmm. symptoms. Is my mind separate from that? Or is that just a kind of sentimental human attachment to the that's, idea of consciousness?
3: That's a very big question. Um, at present, we don't have a really good theory of mind and consciousness, the mainstream assumption in the biological sciences is that mind is the product of brain processes, and that in the end, it's all reducible to biochemistry. And that even though we are not there, we are progressing in that direction of reducing emotional states and mental states to biochemistry and to um, electrochemical reactions in the brain. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but this is mainstream science today. And uh, we are, or scientists, are getting better and better in deciphering, basically in hacking the human humanity and um, mapping. What does anger mean in biochemical terms? What does joy mean in biochemical terms? And this enables scientists to start describing your emotional state in much more sophisticated ways than just saying, I'm angry or I'm bored. They can say, oh, now you have a mixture of 24% anger, uh, 27% boredom, whatever. So even in this sense, uh, the ability of an artificial intelligence or an algorithm to diagnose your exact emotional state will soon vastly outperform the ability of a person to describe his own mental states. And certainly the ability to diagnose the mental state of, an, of another human. If I try to diagnose your mental state at present, then I usually have just two kinds of information, of data, to base my diagnosis on. First of all, I diagnose or I analyze uh, what do you say. The contents, the words you choose to use, and also the tone of voice. Secondly, I use visual cues about your facial expression, about your hand movement, and so forth. So I'm using these two kinds of external signals, uh, visual and audio, and to some extent also smell, to try and analyze what is your emotional state. Now, an artificial intelligence will be able to do that even better than a human being to analyze exactly the tone of voice uh, of of another person. But in addition, it will be able to rely on far more important and far richer uh, source of data, which is biometric signals within the body. I can't see what is happening in your brain at present. I can't see what is happening to your heart at present. I just try to deduce it from looking at your face. But if you implant uh, biometric sensors in the human body as which is being done today, mm. it's routine, uh, quite routine, then the artificial intelligence will be able to know what's what part of your brains are working now and what is your exact heart rate now and what is your exact blood pressure and this will enable the artificial intelligence or the algorithm to understand your emotional state far better than I can, or even than you can.
1: What's really interesting about all of that, well, among the things that are really (laughs) interesting about all of that, is it leads me to think that after these centuries, say, of uh, the increase of freedoms, of freedom for women, freedom across uh, races, freedom of sexuality, we're going to have to reconceptualize what individual freedom means.
3: No, we'll have to reconceptualize what individual means. I mean, the word individual, if you look at the word itself, what it means is something that cannot be divided. Individual. You you can't divide it. Which goes back, basically, to Christian and Jewish mythology about the existence of a soul, which is my true essence, my true identity, is something eternal and indivisible. And this is why I'm an individual. Mm -hmm. And what's happening now is that science is reaching the conclusion that humans are not individuals. Humans are individuals. Each human is a collection of different biochemical systems that can be divided and analyzed. And if you analyze these different biochemical systems and how they interact, you understand the person. There is no essence, there is no soul, there is no spark, divine spark, which is beyond these different biochemical systems. So I think what we really we will see uh, is the transformation of individuals into individuals. And for me, uh, last year I saw this wonderful film, I think a, a Disney film, Inside Out, did you see it? Yes, about,
1: about, about the children's emotions. About, yes, yes, what's happening yes.
3: inside the head of a little girl, Riley, as she, she moves from Minnesota to San Francisco, something like that. And this is Disney. I mean, for decades, they sold us this story that humans are individuals and just go with your feelings and be yourself and whatever. And suddenly Disney is, is rethinking, oh, no, 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 we had a mistake. You're not an individual. Riley... When you look at the girl, she's, she's just a robot. You, under, you need to understand, when you look inside, there is no soul inside, there is no individual inside, there are different biochemical systems inside which are being personalized in the movie as anger and joy and sadness, and they go on, on, a, on an adventure inside the brain and they see how dreams are being manufactured and they see how memories are being manufactured and this is it. This is what's happened behind the curtain of this little girl, Riley. She is not an individual anymore. She has no true self.
1: Yuval, I cannot believe in our conversation we've come from the future of humanity and the non-existence of death to Inside Out. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. I just want to ask you a final question, which probably will seem quite absurd okay. as a question to ask. Do you, at the end of this extraordinary piece of work, Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel hopeful for the future of humanity? Or is it almost a sort of irrelevant question?
3: No, it's relevant. Usually I try to be just realistic. I think my job as a historian, as a scientist, is seeing what is happening. And if you rush to say this is good, this is bad, it kind of prevents you from really understanding what is happening. I think the change is always frightening, especially if you're over 20. Um, because you already invested so much in building an identity and a career and a life. You don't want to start all over again. So big changes are always frightening. And so any big change sounds pessimistic, sounds bad. But this has been the case throughout history. What the 20th century shows us, amongst other things, is that technology is never deterministic. With the same kind of technology you can construct completely different kinds of societies. With the technology of the Industrial Revolution, trains and steam engines and radio and so forth, you could have constructed a communist society, a fascist society, or a liberal democracy. The trains, the steam engines by themselves, did not tell you what to do with them. And this is also true today, with the new technologies of artificial intelligence and biotechnology and so forth, There isn't just a single destination. And another thing is that um, humankind has the capacity to rise to the challenge presented by new and terrifying technology. Uh, The best example is nuclear weapons. When nuclear weapons first appeared on the scene in the 1940s and 1950s, the expectation was that sooner or later, the result will be a nuclear holocaust. Um, And it didn't happen, at least not yet. The world is now actually far more peaceful than at any previous time in history, largely thanks to nuclear weapons, because they forced humankind, they forced the superpowers, they forced the politicians to change the way that geopolitics is being done in the world. So I don't know about the future, Maybe we'll have a nuclear holocaust in 20 years or 30 years. But at least as of 2016, humankind has managed to rise up to the challenge of nuclear weapons. And this gives me the hope that we can similarly rise up to the challenge presented by biotechnology and artificial intelligence.
1: Yuval, thank you so much. I hope we can. I'm going to keep your words. We've never had it so good in mind, I think. They seem they seem like a good way to go forward. Um, thank you so much. That was just wonderful to talk to you. And very best of luck with publication and the rest of your time in the UK. Thank you. Wow. Will, uh, my brain hurts.
0: My, <laughs> it My, does. Brain, it my hurts. brain often hurts, but it really hurts. That was amazing. Uh, particularly loving the fact that it managed to involve Disney's Inside Out. That was not something I was expecting.
1: (laughs) No, I didn't. I didn't. I had an enormous list of questions and notes, and I must say that was a kind of properly challenging, fascinating conversation. Um, There's an incredible intensity, isn't there, about Yuval as he he talks about these things.
0: As you said, that wide sweep that he's able to sort of focus his gaze on, and, and he really points you in the right direction and makes... Very complicated things seem very simple and sort of obvious when he states them. And you go, "Ah, oh, of course, of course that's what it is or of course that's where we're going. So I don't know quite how I feel, whether I'm feeling positive or negative about it. It's, it's quite a lot to process. So maybe next month we can come back yes. and see as, where we as are. As
1: Americans say, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, I think that the best thing possibly to do is go and have a cake and watch inside out and just to come back another day. I'm
0: always up for that.
1: Well we are going to come back next month aren't we Will? Mm-hmm. Supposing we can just sort of get our heads around yeah. what we've just heard. Um, and we're going to be talking about something kind of different but kind of related and that's transforming stories. The kind of transformations that can happen in fiction and that perhaps can only happen in fiction. We will be with Margaret Atwood and Ian McEwen to talk about their radically strange and gripping new novels
0: yes margaret atwood's uh, next novel is part of the hogarth shakespeare series so her take on the tempest which is entitled hagseed uh and Amy Kewen's latest novel nutshell is not part of the hogarth series but is indeed another sort of transformation of a shakespeare story looking at the the hamlet story i guess but both yeah completely different books but fascinating and i can't wait to hear what they've both got to say about them now we would love, of course, to hear from you, our listeners. So if you are listening on SoundCloud, please do leave a comment below. If you're listening on iTunes, leave us a rating. And if you're listening somewhere else, just contact us on you know, Twitter or Facebook, wherever we are. We would love to know what you think. Come say hi. Come say hi. <laughs> it's, it's friendly. The water's lovely. Come on in. Um, otherwise, we will see you next month.